I'm Joseph. And I'm Nick. And this is Fish Jelly. Mmm. How are you? Good, how are you? Okay. You just woke up? I didn't just wake up, I lounged. Oh. That's what we're calling it. Okay. It's, it's called relaxing and enjoying your Sunday. Oh, I wouldn't know anything about that. But, uh... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Your family's in town visiting, mm-hmm. so that's been nice. Yes. And today we're going to go to the Motion Picture Museum. Something Is that what like, it's called? Something like that. Yeah. The uh, the the Motion Academy of Arts Picture Show Museum. As soon as uh, you uh... Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. There you go. Which is new. It's next to LACMA. Yes. Yeah. All right. Anything you want to say before we get started? About, uh, live, laugh, love. Oh. Tomorrow's my birthday. Yep. We're pre- prepping for that. A second cake is being forged in the furnaces today. And all gifts can be sent via Venmo. I just want cash. <laughs> uh-huh. That'll do. That'll do. I know what I like. Um, okay. So RuPaul's Drag Race... Uh, Canada. Canada's Drag Race. Canada. Season 2, Episode 2. Wait, what is the actual title? Canada's Drag Race. There's no RuPaul at that? No. Oh. It's Canada's Drag Race. RuPaul, like, take my name off this. <laughs> well, she's not on it, so... Yeah, maybe... Maybe they just bought the rights to it. Because they also have weird things with her music. Like, they'll play the, the, the track, but not RuPaul's, like, singing, I noticed. Anyway, again, it, it makes it feel very Canadian. Oh wow, I still don't like it. So this week's main challenge was under the big top. They had to do a a rusical, which it's it's that's like people who don't know how to swim and saying you're going to do a, a marathon swimming race today. It was it was interesting because there were a lot of characters like. Like Pennywise was a character, and like some queens voguing, and it made no sense. Yeah, it made no sense. But um, two of the contestants did well. Actually, more than two. Several did quite a good job. Well, because some of them happen to be good singers. They're talented singers. The winner, though, was not a singer. Pythia. Mm-hmm. She did Pennywise, but Pennywise. H- she... Oh, Henny. Pennywise. Uh, she did a very good job, but in the bot, there were several who were terrible, including a trio of clowns, clown, literal clowns. One of whom was my favorite, Ocean Aqua Black, and then Isis Couture, who I don't necessarily care for, and she's a seamstress, and also said she was a performer, mm-hmm. but she did not do well either. I think that's the thing about Drag Race, though. It doesn't matter what you're good or bad at, depending on these chicken shit. These chicken shit gigs. Yeah. Uh, but poor Ocean was sent home. You know, she was uh, fun and interesting, but I don't think she would have gone far no, anyway. No, but I did enjoy her. The Some of the choices were... Her drag was raggedy, but she said it was. Like, she said, I'm an entertainer. I'm not. But yeah. But it was real raggedy. It was real raggedy. Okay, moving on to Drag Race UK, Series 3, Episode 5. Mm-hmm. 
This one was this challenge main challenge was also crunchy to me. Drag Alexa, where they had to, they were in teams three teams or two teams two teams, and each team had to create like a commercial for this um, take on Amazon's Alexa, which was already stupid, <sighs> and it was so stupid that for the first time in Drag Race history, <laughs> there wasn't a winner because they were all bad. Both commercials were stupid. They made no sense. They didn't do sort of the obvious, which is so funny because when when they do the obvious, they get critiqued for doing that. And then when they try to do something different, they get critiqued for that. So it's getting a little annoying um, making them do these ridiculous challenges. I mean, I almost feel like these, you know, because it transitioned from like when Drag Race first started, it was really about being like a talented drag queen. Like, can you look good? Can you sew? And, and then can you construct a garment? Can you... And then it became more like, can you perform beyond just being entertaining? Like, can you do dips and splits? And can you sing? Can you dance? And then it's become more like, are you an actor? Are you funny? And now I feel like it's almost like, can you be like a comedy writer? Or so, like like a show writer? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, basically. They're, they're the ones that succeed. Yeah, it's it's... Like like some sort of like songwriter or script writer, but uh, it's an interesting trajectory of because I don't know that. Well, that's why they brought BB Zahara back. BB Zahara Benet back for All Stars Five. Yes, uh, which I think was good because it showed that a queen from season one, who happened to be the winner, she still performed really well mm -hmm. in sort of a more modern setup. But anyway, for Drag Lexa, the two in the bottom were Charity Case and Scarlet Harlot. Scarlet Harlot was in the bottom the previous episode with Charity Case as well. So those two uh, were in the bottom the previous episode as well. And that was the double save, mm -hmm. which I did not think was... No, I think Scarlet should have gone home. Scarlet should have gone home. This go-round, they performed uh, the lip-sync they perform a lip sync to Shirley Bassey's Big Spender, which I was not impressed by, but Charity Case gets sent home, which I was surprised by. Uh, I think she's much more interesting than Scarlet Harlot. Oh yeah, I definitely agree. I think based on that lip sync, I can see why that decision was made. But Well, because she sort of did the same thing she did last, like kind of creeped around with like the same makeup on. Like she looks the same, <laughs> doing the same lip sync. I, yeah, she looked like uh, the anthropomorphized version of Maria Bamford's anxiety mosquito in in Big Mouth. Which is cool. Yes. But, but we've seen it like three times already. Yeah, it's like we know that you have ornate, elaborate costumes with weird, creepy, nightmare fuel. She reminds me of a more elevated Nina Bonina Brown. Yes. Like super creative, but just kind of can't... But she's like a drag... If a drag queen was a nightmare... Sure, but I also think it reminds me kind of of you. Like, you just don't want to do... Like, like you just want to do what you want to do. And it's like, but can you just do what I want you to do? <laughs> you know, like, for, like she just seems like she's not going to do what they want her to do. Right. And that's great in many ways. Like, for her artistry, it makes sense and it's noble. But just for, like, practicality... Because she is an attractive person, so she could be very... She could give them what they wanted. Yes. Like glamour puss, but it's like, nope, I'm going to come out here looking like 
<laughs> everything that could go wrong in an elevated way. Like, she looks great. Mm -hmm. But then it gets boring. Because even Sharon Needles was able to sort of give a broader range of... Yeah, but that was a constant harangue, right? The... Sure. But it, it paid off in the end because she won. Sure. All right, moving on. We watched the second episode of Child's Play, the USA sci-fi show. Yeah. What did you think? Doing a lot. It's doing a lot. It's okay. I mean... The best part of it is the Shucky doll. Of course. Brad yeah. Dourif. Brad, voiced by Brad Dourif. Uh, who, we were watching it with your sister. and Because at the end of every episode, they do like a behind the scenes for each episode. Mm -hmm. Which I kind of like. And Brad Dourif pops up on the screen. And when your sister realized... How old he was. How old he had become. <laughs> she screamed. But he, yeah, but he's still kicking. Yeah, but that show's doing a lot. I'll still continue as it comes up on YouTube. But... Again, it's also my problem with television in general. Everything just seems stretched out when most, especially with genre, to me that's kind of a deadly combination because why, I'm going to get bored. Well, yeah, I was thinking that, like, because they're, they're dragging it out, like, you know, the main girl, Lexi, who's dating the main boy's cousin. We're not going to get into the story, but she's like, I want her to die. I want all, mostly all of them to die. Because the girl, they have like a Halloween party and she mimics the death of another character's dad. And Chucky is telling the main character, like, kill her. And I just thought, yeah, kill this bitch. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, everything becomes kind of on the nose when in this format... When I I just want some subversive subtext and and hit me with it. <laughs> yeah, it's it feels dragged out, but I will still watch. All right, so films we uh, watched this week for fun. I this sounds familiar. The Journey Absolution. Oh my God, this sounds familiar. This was terrible. We, what is it about? It's with Mario Lopez. <gasps> oh, we watched a riff track and. Uh, What's her name? Jesse or Jamie King? Jamie King. No, or Jamie Presley. Jamie Presley. That movie, it was a riff tracks, which is like the MST3K guys uh, mm -hmm. voicing their commentary over the film. That movie, this this movie was some bullshit. It was. It's homoerotic. And Richard Grieco. Richard Grieco, who's only like 32. And looks. And he, if you told me he was 50, I wouldn't think twice about it. <laughs> He looks crazy. It's from 1997. Uh, Read the synopsis of it. Most of Earth has been destroyed by an asteroid, which happens before the credits, by the way. A small military colony, New America, has managed to survive in the Arctic. When a soldier goes missing at the colony, authorities send Ryan Murphy to investigate. <laughs> that's right. His name is Ryan Murphy. Um, it's, oh, that's the name of that. Like... Ryan Murphy's the, the showrunner. Yeah, American. I have a coworker named Ryan Murphy as well. Um, the uh, yeah, this show or this movie directed, made directed by whom? David Dakota, who's directed like two hundred and some odd things. So obviously not a. If you want to see very attractive men with no shirts on in like tidy whitey boxer briefs, this is the film for you. Mario Lopez looks great. But the story makes no damn sense. <laughs> and it's just kind of painful to watch. It's, it was, even with the riff tracks. Yeah, was, even with the riff tracks, it's painful. But, you know, they were they were all very young doing this terrible film. It's just, I, I don't know if it, it, it probably premiered on television. But it's bad. And it looks more dated than 1997. 
I can't even say it was worth because you know there were those other like you know like gay bait type movies where it's just a bunch of hot young guys shirtless like wrestling around with some ridiculous thin plot I don't even think this film is that enjoyable because it's not no there there, there, there isn't that much there isn't enough like sort of roughhousing shirtless guys to like make it sort of no, not like how Paul Verhoeven was kind of doing the same thing with Starship Troopers that same year. Well, I'm thinking more like those Brotherhood movies or, sure. you know, like borderline softcore, you know, but no sexual, like, like, like there's no sex. I don't enjoy those films, but I'm just saying I can imagine the people who like those probably won't enjoy this because there's not enough. No, but Richard Grieco is giving you a performance. I don't know if he's trying to be... Uh, Kurtz from Apocalypse Now or what with that cigar. They the Rift Tracks guys kept saying he's doing a Jack Nicholson impression. I don't quite get that. It is it is whoa. I would actually out. recommend watching it without the Rift Tracks. It might be more enjoyable because <laughs> you could focus on these crazy performances. Anyway, moving on to Rolling Thunder. Rolling Thunder, yes. Uh written by Paul Schrader, uh directed uh directed by John Flynn, starring William Devane and Tommy Lee Jones. I think that's 77, about a uh, pair of prisoners of war who come back in Vietnam uh, to their small town, Texas, and they're, of course, ravaged by PTSD. Uh, He comes back to find that his wife is going to leave him because she's fallen in love with somebody else, so he's just got this young boy to take care of. And he is almost immediately uh, robbed at gunpoint because the small town does all these processions for him when he comes home and gives him money and a... Cadillac, I believe. Oh. And so he gets robbed by these hicks and his wife and son are murdered. <laughs> and so then he just goes on a rampage trying to kill these men uh, with his old friend, Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, wow. It's very, you know, it's written by Schrader, not directed by him, but I kind of wish I had seen this before seeing the card counter, at least so I could have referenced it in my review, because, uh, you know, card counter is um, riffing on Abu Ghraib. But, uh, Schrader's doing a, a, a very similar things here, and I almost wish he had directed it. Uh, but Devane is good. Uh, Tom Lee Jones is, uh, you know, young and handsome in it, playing a very troubled man. Uh, very interesting, of course, if you're fans of anybody uh, in it or behind the scenes. Okay. I wouldn't be in your shoes. Um, I have a Warner Brothers archive Blu-ray of I Wouldn't Be in Your Shoes, a 1940s film noir directed by William Nye, uh, but most notably uh, based on something by Cornell Woolrich, who I think last week I was talking about The Broad War Black because uh, I'd read the book. Sure. Uh, which Truffaut famously adapted. Uh, this is very, you know, it's... If, there's, if you're ever in doubt about how great something like Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity is, you know, you go back and watch some other film noirs from the 40s. And, you know, this is very, um, what it, uh, it's a cheapie, uh, basically about a guy who gets home, his, he forgets that he has his new shoes on, throws one out the window at a caterwauling cat, and that item ends up being the reason that he is accused uh, and sentenced for murdering a man he didn't murder, leaving his wife to go out into the city and try to solve the case uh, at the last minute. Oh. Uh, but what's notable about that is there's Don Castle and Elise Knox, but Elise Knox is the mother of Mark Harmon, 
Oh. So it was interesting watching her basically play the lead, who's this very fresh-faced young beauty. Uh, you probably can't see her from here, but it's like, oh, that's Mark Harmon's mom. Okay. Very interesting. Anyway. Next, physical evidence. I called you into the room to watch a couple scenes from this. Uh, 1989 film. Oh, with Burt Reynolds. With Burt Reynolds. So I was scrolling, because they're... they're I mean, I'm, pr I'm probably more caught up than I think I am in a lot of Burt's filmography, but uh, for whatever reason. And uh, I was scrolling on Amazon Prime, and I'm like, oh, this looks like schlock that I'd be interested in. I don't know if I can handle Burt Reynolds and Teresa Russell at the same time. And then I noticed it was directed by Michael Crichton. And I'm like, oh, I need to watch this. And uh, it, it, ostensibly, it's the last film directed by Michael Crichton. A couple weeks ago, you said you were watching some movies for your own personal reasons. What was that? Oh, because I'm working on something. Yeah, but what what was the director? Or It was something noir. Oh. <laughs> My own personal reasons. Well, there, there's, there, there are intentions there. No, I know. It's just funny how you... I had to watch this for my research. <laughs> yeah, it's research. Come on now. Okay. Anyway, physical evidence. Um, I just want to start by defend. I feel like I like the need to defend Burt Reynolds because I know everyone made fun of how he looked after he got his facelift, and I and you did as well, and so did everyone. I don't think he looks bad. Like I think his face looks fine. What's worse or more distracting to me is his hair. The which hair looks like a Brillo pad, which I'm terrible. sure is either a toupee or badly colored. No, I have gone on to tell you that I think he looks fine. It's just that in certain lighting, you can see how skin has been pulled. Sure, sure. But I don't think he looks like a freak. No, but you know, I forget because I have a friend um, who you know that really likes Burt Reynolds and we talk about him often uh and there were rumors that people were afraid Bert had hiv in the 80s because i think he had injured himself very badly on a set of a film that he co-starred with clint eastwood i don't remember the title of and i think it stopped filming and resumed and he looked drastically different like he looked um depleted and people that that was kind of a rumor going around i think sometime in the 80s oh i don't know i didn't give him aids so i don't know um, but anyway, physical evidence. I did watch a clip. I don't know what it's about, but I just saw like, you said Teresa Russell? Yeah, she used to be married to Nicholas Rogue. She is his like public defender. And part of it is the audio, like the audio, like the dubbing is crazy. You may say that, but she sounds like that in every film I've seen. No, no, no. I mean, even, I, I was going to say, I know her acting's crunchy because even with the dubbing, just watching her mouth, the <laughs> mouth the shit, it looked bad. <laughs> But anyway, you can quickly review it. it. This was supposed to be a sequel to Jagged Edge, which oh. I don't know if you've seen that. With uh, I'm only familiar with the 2000s uh, R&B group Jagged Edge. No, this was a 19... With the song Let's Get Married, which was a favorite of mine back then. But go ahead. Back then. Uh, this was a Glenn Close film. One of the only films she wasn't kind of nominated for, I think, in that stretch uh, of, the, of her 80s work. Uh, but with Jeff... I think she's defending Jeff Bridges. I haven't seen it in years, but it was a, it was a hit... You know, because all of these uh, ladies were playing uh, lawyers and DAs. Remember Suspect with Cher? Okay. Or I think maybe that was even the same year in 87. Anyhow, uh, there's supposed to be a sequel to Jagged Edge, and then they recalibrated it, because, of course, why give a powerful woman a sequel to a hit film she starred in? Uh, so they pulled in Teresa Russell. Uh, you might know her. <laughs> she, she was in a movie called Whore 
1991, which Ken Russell directed as kind of a response to the falsehoods in Pretty Woman. Okay. (laughs) And then uh, she played Denise Richards' mother in Wild Things. Oh, I don't... Okay. Which anyway. I think I, anyway, and of course was the muse of... But physical evidence, what's the Physical evidence. She's a... Uh, Burt Reynolds was uh, accused of, I think, murdering somebody, and she's the only... She has to... She's the only one that believes him, basically, and has to... Although that's not how our justice system works. Like, he should be able to get uh, uh, legal counsel without anyone believing he didn't do it. Actually, I'm not... I'm blinking on the plot mechanics now because it was so ridiculous. But uh, it is... It's pretty bad. And her sequences are... Because uh, she also, of course, has a romance with him and she's currently with somebody else. And it, it was just painful to watch. I would recommend if you... What gives you what you want, I think, if you know what you're looking for is Rent-A-Cop starring Burt Reynolds and Liza Minnelli as a prostitute he falls in love with uh, which is not a good movie and they also have no chemistry at all but uh, it is more entertaining but yeah poor Michael Crichton I, I don't know I don't know what happened okay Swamp Water Swamp Water uh, I've owned the Blu-ray for years it's Jean Renoir's first uh, English language film I believe I, it was not. I was expecting a noir. It was not uh, what I'm expecting. What, what I was expecting uh, whatsoever. It's uh, set in the Okefenokee swamp area, uh, so I thought we were going to get. There's some... a real place called Okefenokee. Yeah, in Georgia. Oh, <laughs> I need to look that up. Okefenokee. Um, yes, and but otherwise, it has some interesting. Um, of course, an interesting Walter Brennan performance. Who, if you close your eyes, sounds like. Jimmy Stewart to me. Uh, but yeah, Renoir directed, based on a novel, uh, really stars Dana Andrews, who I think I I think was very handsome, but I think I liked him more when he was kind of grizzled and past his prime in some film noirs, like a couple Fritz Langs he did. What is this movie about? Uh, oh, it's about uh, a guy, a boy. Dana Andrews is supposed to be playing a boy whose father is Walter Houston, uh, who his dog gets lost in the Okefenokee and he has to go find him and he stumbles on Walter Brennan, who is a criminal hiding out in the swamp. Uh, and he befriends Dana Andrews, who basically goes back and forth in town to correspond with um, Walter Brennan's daughter, played by a very young Ann Baxter, who can't be like 17 or 18, who you know from as Eve from All About Eve. Oh, um, or a Nefertiti in Ten Commandments. Okay. It's, so it's fun seeing all of those people who do look very young, but ultimately it felt, it's 1941, it it felt very 1941. Okay, next, Hellhole. And another thing, I must, I think I was in the mood for something Halloween-y and uh, have owned this for years. 1985, I, I would say this is a sexploitation film, uh, but has some really interesting supporting characters, incla- including Marjo Gortner uh, and Mary Warrenov, and Mary Warrenov, and Robert Zadar. Mary Warrenov is so striking to me. I just, any of this terrible, atrocious dialogue, she can just deliver. Hmm. I sent you a picture of her. Okay. And you said, you kept asking if she was trans. You make me sound like a terrible person. <laughs> she's a handsome lady. She's, I think she's so my first striking. Thought, so my first thought was, oh, is this woman trans? But I know that's not appropriate. No, I, no not that she does. I think that was always something that kind of plagued her, kind of like Sierra. Oh! 
No, I know that I don't think people always say that though, which I. Again, people used to say that about Sierra until she had some surgery on her face, which is un- which is unfortunate. That that, what does it matter? But anyway, I I think that what is striking about Mary Warnoff, who whose biggest film is probably Eating Raoul, uh, is that element of she's just this secretive, seductive creature. I like not to. Uh, demean any interpretation of her in any way i don't believe she was trans but it, it doesn't matter it's just that what she, is this movie about oh oh she plays this crazy psychiatric doctor on a psychiatric ward who uh problematic uh uh what's the word why don't you read the synopsis of it <laughs> what does the synopsis say well, this synopsis doesn't really encapsulate what the film is about. The hellhole is this secretive lab on this in this, in this mental asylum that they cart away the problematic wards, and Doctor Fletcher, played by Mary Warnov, does secret experiments on them. Oh. And then that basically is what's going. Did on. Did you like it? No, it's terrible. Oh. Uh, most of, that's why it's a sexploitation film. It's like Caligula. Every time we're in between the plot mechanics, we're treated to these women inmates who are always naked, in mud baths, in the shower, doing all kinds of drugs, including meth, uh, and just having a gay old time. It sounds interesting. It sounds It's not good. The lead is actually uh, played by Judy Landers, who I thought it looked like, a lot like Fifi O'Hara, who always has blown O'Hara and always has her makeup on. Uh, who what, the, It opens, she watches her mother get murdered, who has some kind of secret files that this man, the murderer, needs. And he becomes an orderly in this psychiatric institution to plague her, but she has amnesia and can't remember him. So he needs Dr. Fletcher to kind of scare her into jump-starting her brain. Oh, God. Okay. In the hellhole. It's not good. Next, The Thing That Wouldn't Die. You watch this with a... It's a favorite Mystery Science Theater 3000 treatment of an old 50s film. About a lady who... Well, she's like a water witch. Yes. So she... (laughs) She uses a stick to find, like, wells of water, but she comes upon an area that's evil, and, uh, like, a head is found. Mm-hmm. And is, buried by Sir Francis Drake. And the head is, uh, like, sort of uh, possessing some of these women to do bad things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's... I mean, obviously, it's not good. That's why there's an MST3K treatment of it. It's... It, it's not one of my favorites. It is enjoyable. I think what's... Uh, you know, there's there's a line, dig the hell out of my lawn. Oh, go ahead, dig the hell out of my but lawn. But you know what I thought we were about to watch is the one where there's the line where she says uh, something in my dreams of blood. Oh, the leech woman. The, yeah. Um, it's in black and white and the quality of the video is not the best. So I think that takes away from the experience. But it is sure. a fun watch um, because the movie's ridiculous. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's stupid as all hell. But it, uh, you know, I saw this years ago when I was on the Sci Fi Channel in the late '90s. But it 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 remains fun. Uh, the commentary track is fun. Uh, it stars William Reynolds as Gordon Hawthorne. Uh, William Reynolds played Barbara Stanwyck's son in There's Always Tomorrow. He's very handsome. And then the old man. That they they go get this man from the National Archives or something. The, 
in the middle of the night. Oh. To examine the chest that is examined, that old man that oh, okay. they assert has the hots for Aunt Flavia. Uh, he is in all that heaven allows with okay. Jane Wyman. And lastly, we watched American Gigolo. I had never seen that film before. I didn't care for it. Why? I love it. I thought the writing was corny. I thought Richard Gere was not the right. But he, he was handsome. He's handsome, but he wasn't like. I don't know all the dialogue about how he ugh, watching him, like when he. So it's about uh, Richard Gere plays a character named Julian K. Julian K. He's a male prostitute, but he's like a high class prostitute, and he ends up um, turning a trick with a woman who ends up being murdered, and he's accused of it. He's framed for it. Well, or he's framed for it, so he's accused of killing her, and he is arrested for it. But ultimately, he gets off because a senator's wife, played by Lauren Hutton, uh, provides him with an alibi. Mm-hmm. The end. Yeah. But I thought I, I thought Lauren Hutton was beautiful, like striking, and I thought she was very good in her role. But I thought Richard Gere just seemed the writing was corny, like him being this like sex master, like refined because he's supposed to speak many languages and he has access to all these like country clubs and he's supposed to but that's all like him saying that he's he's manipulative but he's not it's fake it till you make it okay but to me fake good example so it, it should have either been someone like uh like a pierce brosnan like a very handsome or you think you should intercontinental be- type of gentleman or it should have been like What's his name? Uh, Darren Chris doing um, the assassination of Gianni Versace, like Andrew Cunanan, like delusional. But you just have Richard Gere. So you're saying you want to see the cracks more evidently. He needed to either be so debonair that it's like he, all like like all these basic rich white ladies would just be so like he would be so magnetic to them, or he needed to just be a full on con. But in this film, he's just like yes, he is handsome. But then his body is just kind of like, well, he's not like, I mean, I think he's like, yeah, like, like I'm sure gay men would find him very appealing, but I don't think well, that like. I, I think that's where the film, it doesn't get seedy enough because it, I think what it needs, what it really needs to feel and what it lacks is that, that essence of kind of the darkness always nipping at his heels. Like. Then that was the other thing. He is in trouble. He's being accused of killing this lady. And then the way... So, I always forget. Is it Renee Elizondo or Hector? Hector. Oh. Renee is Janet Jackson's ex-husband. Hector Elizondo plays a detective. And the way Julian is talking to the detective is just, like, so ridiculous. If, If he's supposed to be smart and have money, like, to pay for an attorney, why are you talking to this detective and telling him, like, well, sensitive matters because it's not all, like legal and well what the fuck are you talking about get an attorney and shut up i get but i get that it it was also a different era and he is living his la fantasy and knows he didn't do it but that's the but the other problem too is like it's not really a fantasy like he has a beautiful apartment with all the things and drives a very expensive mercedes and has custom italian suits made for him and Mm -hmm. you know closets full of clothes and he's living the life so it's not a fantasy he's doing it the, but what you're talking about, what I what I think you're talking about is the fact that he really isn't, like, this life he's created for himself is, um, like, almost like a mirage. That's it can what be I mean. taken yes. away at any moment. But then the film, I don't think, does a good job of explaining that, because even when he does get arrested, we don't see 
his life fall apart because in the end, Lauren Hutton's character says, well, I'll be with you. I don't know what we're going to do because obviously I can't go home because the paparazzi's there, but, or the, 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 the reporters because her husband's a Senator the end. So I, I don't know. I wanted it to either like it, for Richard Gere to make it work, I think it needed to be kind of seedy. Like, he he is doing these jobs, but then he lives in, like, a shit apartment in Hollywood. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Um, so, I just was kind of annoyed by his character. Every time he spoke, every time he was sexual, it was just like, ugh. Sure, but I think that Schrader did the best he could with the limitations because... It also on, on another angle, it is extremely forthcoming with uh, queer elements, and I think that was you kept saying that, but I wasn't getting that. Except that Richard Gere, Gere's character keeps saying, "I don't do fags, I don't do fags." He says, "Yeah, it but like you four have times. well, but you have Bill Duke in these gay bars and these boys that he's out peddling around and using for nefarious reasons. Like that's very but it's very yeah but you may think of seem... the think of the year sure but the way you had described it to me before i watched it i was thinking i mean there there's no gay shit in it it's just that bill duke plays it's, a pimp they make it very clear that richard gear's character that julian k has done all kinds of gay shit and just it's a lot of work okay, it's but a it, lot of work for him yeah but, but you're making it sound like it's very like overt and we, we don't see anything and all we hear is him saying i don't want to do gay shit I, like I don't want to do fags. I don't. Yeah, because it doesn't. Because it's. it's he doesn't say I'm tired he, of getting fucked but, in the ass, or he doesn't say anything like that. He, he just says no. But he sees it as kind of gutter. But it's it, that's also what I mean by the darkness dipping at his heels. He's trying to escape from that life. But that's yeah. But it's very he's what, Julian K. This character is very shiny. He lives in a very fancy like hotel apartment building, like nipping at his heels, I think the only tension I felt was like, dude, you're in trouble and you're just like thinking that it's going to go away because he doesn't want to reveal his clients as an alibi or he doesn't, he doesn't want to give information because obviously well, a, big, he, a, a big factor of his, him doing well is that he's discreet. So he doesn't want to, well, once he starts revealing clients that burns bridges and it burns bridges at the time we meet him, he's already burned a lot of bridges because the woman that trained him, the sweetest oh, lady, that character I thought was corny and that their back and forth was so like, but that's supposed to exemplify how really nobody cares about him. Yeah. But we get the same scene three times of him talking to this, his, his original pimp lady who lives in this beautiful home, which appears to be in Malibu somewhere. And it's a, like their interactions, they have three interact, three different scenes that all are the same thing. Like, I trained you, I made you who you are, and now you're out here doing side jobs, and you don't want to give me my respect, so I'm not going to help you. That's basically what she says to him in three different scenes. Sure. So it just felt like, what is the point of this? Like, it's the, it's like, like multiple times. Because he goes back to her, like, can you help me? I'm being accused of murder. And she's like... I trained you, you are well, out she's, here, she's I'm a, not going to help She's you. also a plot mechanic because also dangling in the periphery is this $8,000 job of the Swedish lady that he's learning Swedish for. Which I felt like I had forgotten about that job until the end when he sees her and she's like, you didn't even do that job I got you yesterday. I know, but it's a, but it's a film. So I don't understand it's, the it's gravity a, of that but job. But it's, it's a film and a life that's all about dangling carrots. So to me, I don't mind any of that. I think it's okay. I would give it three out of five. I don't think... I agree that for the time and for this, I mean, at the time, I mean, I don't think Richard Gere's ever been like A-list male lead actor, but I think for the time, 
it it is a bold story. I think the highlight of this film is Lauren Hutton. Oh, she's beautiful. Although well, I, I think they filled in her gap, which kind of bothered me. They did. Fill in her gap. But yeah, she's gorgeous. Kept, they kept Hector's and filled hers. Yeah, Kepler got his gap, but she uh, No, I love the Blondie Call Me uh, soundtrack and how it's used in kind of woozy, weird oh, ways by Giorgio Moroder. Yeah, so the opening of the film is Blondie's Call Me, like the, like the radio version. And then throughout the film, which is actually really interesting, it's just sort of uh, instrumental versions of the song, but like altered to fit the mood of the scene. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really... Cool. Well, I'll, I love almost anything Giorgio Moroder. Who, well, he's like a disco king, right? Yeah, I mean Donna Summer, yeah. Irene Cara. I'm I, familiar, but yes, no, I, I, I think the, the the use of that song throughout the film is very strong. I think the cinematography is very shaky, but LA's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a it's an LA neo noir to me, and I I appreciate you know, it doesn't feel like. It's not a thriller, though. It, it doesn't feel thrilling as, as a as a template for other queer things that would come. Like it, it has. Schrader leans in a lot into sexual repression in his films, and it, it's not the first time he's had like gay or queer characters. I, I think you know this was the same year as Cruising, right? Like, it's interesting to see what he was able to get away with. I think. From a, a straight cruising film. is a much more subversive film. I agree, but which is why this doesn't feel that bold to me. Like, but I don't know. Like Bill Duke trying to. Uh, hustle. I didn't even recognize that Bill Duke was gay. Bill Duke solicits like male See, prostitutes. See, but I think it's all in the subtext, which I think there's, which is I'm always a fan of subtext. Like, if you really listen to everything Bill Duke is saying, like it's pretty creepy and weird. But I think he went to the bathroom at the moment where Bill Duke tells him, like, dude, you were frameable. And I didn't like you. And nobody liked you. Nobody cares about you. Right, but you're saying that, but it doesn't feel like that. It just feels like he's occupied. Yeah, I mean, you occupy a world of pimps and hoes. Like, there's no honor. It's very shaky. You can, you're can you doing illegal things. So you could get in trouble at any moment. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't... I mean, it's like, yeah, duh. Like, he's, and I, I love... He's, the, he's, a, he's disposable. I love the symbolism of the final scene with Lauren Hutton's hand pressed to get up against the prison glass and him leaning his head against her. And the camera zooms in so you can't tell that it's prison glass, but realizing that forever and always there will be this um, demarcation between them that they, they will never, ever actually be together. I would recommend it. It just wasn't what I thought based on how you were talking about it. But yeah, I mean, it, it's a good film. Okay, moving on to projects of interest, something called Odessa. Yes, Christian Petzold is finally moving forward on his next project, collecting funds. Uh, after Undina uh, premiered at Berlin, and of course before the pandemic hit, uh, he had said he was doing a queer film next. Uh, over the pandemic, he said he was going to wait till it's over because there's going to be a lot of physicality. So I, I believe this is still the same project, uh, but that's exciting to me. Uh, and next is The Beast in the Jungle. Yes, Patrick Chiha, who is a uh, queer filmmaker. I don't know if I made you watch Domain, starring Beatrice Dahl back in 2009, which is a lot of fun. Uh, but he's directed several documentaries and other things since then, usually that premiere in Berlin uh, that I catch. He is adapting a Henry James short story called The Beast in the Jungle, which I have a copy of that I have yet to read. Love Henry James, of course. Um, uh, terminology it was described at uh, was a hui clo, which means behind closed doors. So like a, 
because I, I, it's a very, it's probably more of a short story than a novella, but it must be a, a conversation, i.e. behind closed doors. So that is exciting to me. Mm. All right, moving on to the obituary section. So the big movie news this past week was uh, an accident on the set of a film called Rust, which was filming in New Mexico, which resulted in the cinematographer, whose name I may not pronounce correctly, Helena Helena Hutchins. Based on the spelling. Helena Hutchins. We've seen her work. She She was killed. She um, was the cinematographer on Darlin, uh, the sequel to The Woman. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, she's been around a while. So, obviously a tragic accident at the hands of uh, one of my faves, Alec Baldwin. Uh, This is devastating because, you know, to be, like, accidentally killed at work is just, like, like, so horrible. And then to accidentally kill someone, I mean, it's just, like, it's just devastating on all ends because... You know, I, like I know Alec Baldwin has had, you know, he's well known for like having a temper and blah, blah, blah. But certainly he's not a murderer and I'm sure has a heart somewhere in there. Yeah. I, and, yeah. you know, I'm sure it's just, it's just like, I mean, I'm sure he was inconsolable. I'm sure he's devastated. I've read that he's canceled future projects. Like, like those things have been obviously like placed on hold. Um, and then all the people who knew and cared about. Helena, yeah, that's, I mean, that's just what, could you imagine if I got, well, if you got killed at work, I mean, <laughs> I get a check, so, I'm, but no, just to be funny, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I mean, can you imagine, like, you go off to work, and then I get a call, yeah, being told that you were, it, uh, you know, I'm sure more details will come out about it, uh, obviously, I think that I read that he was, was told it was a cold gun. Or well, whatever. the most recent information is the assistant director, um, Dave Halls, is the person who handed Alec the gun and then told him that it was um, that it didn't have live ammunition. But it's come out that there have been formal complaints against this person uh, due to disregards to safety protocols, including weapons and pyrotechnics. Oh, so he has a history. Um, well, that there's your scapegoat. Uh, but some person um, from the set of a film he worked on, some Hulu show, said that they filed a complaint because he wasn't following, like safety. The, you know, he, he he wasn't holding safety meetings. Th- this is why it's important to file complaints because the, 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 there's a trail of people doing the wrong things. But uh, I, you know, I think what's also curious, is, and I'm sure people want to know about, is <laughs> how the gun was pointed. Because didn't it, he also injured the director? Well, so I was reading that, you know, the scene, it it was a rehearsal scene. Like, it wasn't the, you know, Mm -hmm. it was like they were rehearsing. But the scene, the the shot they're trying to get is Alex's character is, like, shooting the gun at the audience. Which means he obviously has to shoot at the camera. At the camera. And then the person managing the camera standing behind it. And then the director was standing behind her. So the bullet went through the cinematographer, through her chest, and then hit the director. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, you know. I mean, this is going to change a lot of things. Generally, I was reading that, you know, most scenes, they shoot, like, off. You know, like, it's rare that they're shooting, like, at the camera. It's like you're you're usually shooting, like, off in the distance where there's no one. So, even if something did... Because 
prop ammo still it still has um you know uh something that will ignite and well, create it's, so it's still it's just, dangerous like close range well just like rubber bullets like well rubber bullets are meant to connect and injure they, but, they hurt yes but, <laughs> but 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 the but the fake ammunition and like because prop guns are often real guns that just hold these fake bullets mm-hmm. if shot at close range like it would still because there's one actor who i was reading was was doing a scene where he's supposed to shoot himself and mm-hmm. was playing with the gun and sh- shot like he wasn't supposed to shoot it and that fake ammunition at close range like killed him mm-hmm. so that's wild well and then of course brandon lee uh but uh, yeah i feel like this will change protocols wow that- i mean if we can't i mean if we can't get real gun violence under control i don't know why we would care about this bullshit and that's the other thing not to d- minimize the loss of this person but it's just like you know we can't get real gun safety under control. So it's like, are we really about to go off about fake gun safety? Like, Well, uh, they're, par- same, they're, they're similar parts of the same conversation. I know. But- and I'm being difficult, but it's just like, it's just like, I'm a, t- I, g- guns are a problem. Yeah, I agree. That being said, I, I do want a gun and I feel like I need to know how to handle a gun, but... <sighs> Be- because they're a reality. If no one had guns, then I wouldn't give a shit about guns. Sure. If we could all say, like, no one can have a gun, I'm fine with that. But since a lot of people do, it's like, well, let me go ahead and get one and learn how to manage it. But do you have anything else you want to say? Because we're running out of time. No. It's just right. depressing. It, I mean, it is very sad. So the movie, the mystery movie this week was a film called Dreamcatcher. Selected by Joseph. I selected it because I was listening to How Did This Get Made, which is one of my favorite podcasts. And they were talking about it. And I couldn't remember if I had seen it or not. So... I saw it last in the theater when it came out in 2003. I had read the book. So it's a 2003 film uh, based on a Stephen King novel directed by Lawrence Kasdan uh, and written by William Goldman. And apparently those two people are notable. Very extremely notable. Lawrence Kasdan's debut is Body Heat. He wrote a couple of Star Wars films. Uh, you're, he wrote The Bodyguard. Uh, he, he directed The Big Chill. William Goldman... He wrote uh, Princess Bride, All the President's Men. He wrote the film that we did last week for this podcast, Magic. Oh, uh, he's that's written, right. He's written other esteemed Stephen King adaptations, such as Misery, uh, and another one I'm not remembering. Uh, but yes, yeah, so I think the shock at how bad this film was based on the source material and those making it is it's still shocking to have revisited it as an adult it's so bad that i didn't take any notes i couldn't because it just would have been like oh i did i mean it just would have been too many to but i'll just sort of basically go over my like well the story is about four male like lifelong friends Mm -hmm. who um are staying at this like secluded cabin like during the winter when an alien invasion occurs but these aliens have been visiting earth like throughout the years and morgan freeman plays like a military person who's sort of been in control of managing these aliens so they're manageable they're quarantined um in this spot and then the military this like special group comes in and like evaporates them so these four friends are caught in this um this quarantine zone 
in Maine. In Ma- oh, they're in Maine, in New England. And they, they are able to successfully quarantine um, this group. So it seems like, you know, everything will be fine. Two of the four friends end up dying. But I don't even know where to begin. It, the, the dialogue is... So I will tell you... That I'll let you start because you have notes, so my, go ahead. My memories of the novel, I think they were trying to... Oh, you read the book. Yes, but again, back in 2003. Uh, but I remember that whole SSDD, same shit, different day, blah, blah, blah. I think Stephen King... You know, I loved him as a kid, uh, but repeats himself and his uh, kind of trajectories quite a bit. All, the, all these... This is full of his uh, favorite motifs, if you will, but... I think Goldman and Kazdan were trying to stay faithful to the novel, and that's where they probably messed up uh, because this dialogue is terrible. But I remember it being that way in the film or in the book. Uh, Something, some character says, We're about to have a double storm. What the hell is a double storm? (laughs) Oh, and then they keep like the the fuckaroo and fuckery. Jason Lee has the brunt of it uh, as, as Beaver. Uh, who got a bingo blow job and is talking about priapism and going like... Okay, so these four friends have this psychic ability. Oh, I didn't mention that. So these four friends have a psychic ability or like telepathic ability something and they get it from this character named Duddits. Who's as an adult played by Donnie Wahlberg. And Duddits is an alien who knew about this... He's like a good alien and these bad aliens who've been coming to Earth, who that Morgan Freeman's character's been sort of eradicating, he he knew that this bad alien was going to come at some point. So he came to Earth in the body of this little boy with like special needs. Yes, he's like, does he, he have Down he syndrome? Has, no, he doesn't have Down syndrome. He has some, some cognitive delay of some sort, but also ends up with like leukemia. And yes, the, it's too much, but. Uh, these four boys uh, that's this is the other problem we only have like 10 minutes there, there's no time but I don't know if this movie deserves more than a few minutes but the, the my biggest oh, okay this boy who's really like just uh, the the vessel for this good alien who knows sometime in the future he needs to destroy this bad alien he connects with these four boys because he's being bullied and the four boys save him okay and then he teaches them it's not clear to me if he gives them psychic ability or they already had it and he just showed them I, how to use I it. I think he gives it to okay. Well, or we all have it and he opened the door for Right. Them. Okay. Dialogue was terrible. The story is too complicated. Like it's, beca- The movie's two hours and ten minutes. Oh my God, because... Okay, so these four psychic friends, but then their psychic ability doesn't help them in any way. No. Except in the end that Thomas Jane's character is able to find... Because the bad alien is occupying the redhead. What's his name? Damien Lewis. Is occupying his body. So Thomas Jane's uh, psychic ability allows him to find them, to destroy them. But that's really the only time their abilities help them. So what was the point of giving them these abilities? But So there's that. Then Morgan Freeman's character, whose lifelong mission has been to destroy these aliens... He doesn't really come into like the hour mark, and, and then, he's the and he's the headliner, and he's the headliner. But also, there's Tom Sizemore, yes, who's playing like his understudy, I guess, who's going to take over when he retires. And it seems like 
they're both trying to do the same thing, but Morgan Freeman's trying to stop him because there's this other general who wants to, like... Morgan Freeman's superior. But Morgan... There are so... The only reason this movie's interesting is because it kind of ties into COVID and what we're dealing with about the quarantining and how we have people who think that people should just be isolated and then you have this new general who thinks like, no, some people don't get that sick or they're not fully infected by the alien. Let them go. But anyway, then you have that plot, which just makes it more complicated. Which then, doesn't really fit. Either. It doesn't fit. Then the four guys, as when we see them as kids, they're actually really sweet boys. Like, they're thoughtful, they defend their friend, they're really supportive of one another, they don't have the usual, like, adolescent boy shit talk. But then as adults, they're awful people. Yes. Tom, uh, Thomas Jane's a psychiatrist. He's awful. Timothy Oliphant is a used car, car salesman. salesman. who's awful. Like, in kind drunk. of a, like a misogynist. Then, like, I mean, they're all shit. Yes. So I don't understand what's the point of making these four adolescent boys who seem like good people, good stock, turn into like douchebags. But again, it's the same template. It's the, what he does in It. It's what he does in Stand By Me. Uh, the whole SSDD thing is like M-O-O-N in The Stand. It's just a... That's why they don't feel like actual characters, I think, because he's just really recycling a same a similar formula he likes. Then the... Okay, then there's shout-outs to Alien. Oh, yeah. Named because... Af- it's it's called the Ripley virus, named after the broad from Alien, as Morgan Freeman says, who starred in a movie with Sigourney, but whatever. What did he star in with her? Eyewitness. Oh. Oh. Then the aliens are look like... Kind of like tremors, but then they burst out of the body like the aliens from Alien. But out of the ass. But out of the asshole. They're called shit weasels. Shit. Oh my god. It's just... The dialogue... Um, Morgan Freeman, who's clearly supposed to be like General Kurtz from uh, Apocalypse Now, who we referenced earlier already, uh, is given dialogue in that one stretch of sequence he's using alliteration like, It's a paradise of pine. It's a blizzard of bullshit. And oh, and another alien reference is Damien Luce's character and he's named Jonesy, oh, which is named right. the cat from Alien. Oh, then another stupid part of this movie is the memory warehouse. That's really which bad. is used at length. And it's so literal. Like so in reference to like these characters' memories, they say they have memory warehouses where they can go in and sort of like allocate and store memories and like dispose of memories. First of all, it doesn't make sense with how memory actually works, number one. Number two, it's used so heavily, and really the only point... I don't I don't understand why such a prominent plot point is made for what ends up being used to simply explain that the one character, the redhead, didn't know Duddits made it so that he would never know like who Mr. Gray is, which is the bad alien. Mm-hmm. And then Mr. Gray is like trying to get into his memory warehouse to find out where Duddits is. And it is... Uh, but per- it's like, why does he need to know... Oh, God, he's running around in the circular staircase of his mind, and then... It was very Harry Potter to me. Po- like Poor Damien Lewis is due, as Mr. Gray speaking through him as a British voice, because Damien Lewis is Oh, British. that was so dumb. And he said he was doing a Malcolm McDowell impression. I don't understand why this alien would even have a British accent. I don't either. It's not <laughs> why good. Why would he... Um, Morgan Freeman's eyebrows. Morgan Freeman's eyebrows are a problem. And 
I don't understand why that choice was made. Your mom, we watched it with your mom, and she made a good point that maybe it was trying to show that he's older, like close to retirement, which is probably what they were trying to do, which makes no damn sense. Morgan Freeman, been done, been done, looked old. We don't mm -hmm. need to make him look older. He, he <laughs> just finished a, shooting a movie with Julia Binoche where he's again playing a cop hot on their trail. It's like, he is getting a little We older don't need to make Morgan Freeman look older by putting crazy ass eyebrow just no, nothing makes sense the only creepy scene is when we see all the animals fleeing but but there's this like this red coating that happens when the the ripley virus takes over but that ostensibly really does nothing okay. except look like the Jordy Verrill portion of Creepshow. Uh, the only thing I want to say is this is another example of like, this could have been a good movie had it just been four friends in a secluded cabin when aliens attack and they have the psychic ability and they are able to defeat the aliens using their ability. That would have been enough. But you had all these layers that just make it laughable. It felt like if four 11-year-old boys wrote a movie well it's just that's how this movie feels. i think it also goes to show when you have a director that really you know was into adult dramas many of which i didn't even like from his 90s work doing this a stephen king adaptation that just that he failed miserably at and it's it's sad to learn that a filmmaker of his caliber both of whose sons have come to be notable filmmakers including jake kasdan who did the tv set with sigourney and um the in bad teacher uh you know this really slowed his role he's it ruined a lot of projects he was making after this, and he only did one film since then uh, called Darling Companion, which I also did. Well, we have to end this, so what else do you need to say? Oh, I was just going to... I have a quote from Lawrence Kasdan. I tell you, I feel like a real novice as far as horror goes. And then just a very simple Roger Ebert quote. Wait, that quote was from him before he made this movie? <laughs> I think, so. I think <laughs> And they hired him anyway. Uh, and Roger Ebert, no good movie is too long and no bad movie is short enough word this film felt long yeah anything else bite my balls oh that's from the movie oh toodaloo <laughs> <laughs>